Okay, hello everybody and welcome to the RBS Schools Programme at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Sophie Moxon and today it's my huge pleasure to introduce Mr. Tony Bradman, who has been writing... Tony's been writing books for around 20 years and in that time has written over 200 books including the very brilliant Assassin, which has just been published by Barrington Stoke. You're going to be spending the next hour with Tony. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be lots of times for questions, so get thinking now. And afterwards, Tony's going to be signing his books in the signing tent, which is just round the back here next door. But for now, with, no, without further ado, let's give a big hand to Tony Bradman. Okay, can you hear me? Anyone, anyone not hear me? Can you hear me at the back? Yeah. I can't hear you. Can you hear me at the back? Yeah. Okay, fine, right. Now, um, obviously you've all come from quite locally or a long way away, yes? Buses, trains, anyone come by plane today? Helicopter, no? Camel train, no? Um, what I'm going to do is what I usually do uh, when I do school visits, which I've done quite a few over the years, is... Um, the teachers usually like me to do something very serious that will help them with their literacy program. Um, but what I like to do is do really subversive things like um, stuff full of disgusting things and bad language and violence. And Would that be okay? Yeah. So not serious at all. Now what we're going to do is I'll start off with something very, very disgusting. Um, I might do something about teachers as well. It, quite. I quite like, quite like winding up the teachers. Would that be okay? Yes. Um, then, then what we might do is I might do something very, very dangerous which contravenes the health and safety regulations um, because I'm going to need some volunteers from the audience to come out on the stage. Okay? Right, well, remember who you are and I'll come back in a minute. We're going to do that in a while. Um, this is what we authors call suspense, you see. I'm building up suspense. Um, then we can have some questions and answers, quickly, um, and you can ask me anything you like, including um, questions about other of the authors that are here, if I know anything gossipy about them. Uh, I could tell you some terrible stories about some of them, I'm sure. Uh, and then um, we'll do, I'll build up to a big treat. I'll give you a treat, okay? Now, do you want to know what the treat is? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to tell you, okay? Um, that's what we call suspense, you know, you're going to have to wait and see. Uh, so, would you like to start with something really disgusting? Yeah! Uh, well, many years ago, I wrote a book called Very Silly Lists. And that's all it is. It's just lots of very, very silly lists. Uh, it includes lists that are disgusting and some lists about teachers. Now, I usually do one of each, a disgusting list and a teacher list to start with. Now, hands up those of you who'd like the teacher list first. Hands down. Hands up those, the one of one person here who'd like the disgusting list. So, right, okay. Right, we'll do a teacher list first. Now, what would you like? We can do um, uh, 10 things teachers do when they're not at school. Yeah. Or my favourite, 10 things your teacher could do to really impress the class. I'm, I'm sure your teachers are very impressive, really. Right, number one, your teacher could peel off his or her rubber face mask to reveal a hideous alien underneath. 
And in the last Scottish school I went into, the kid said, she's done it already. There you go. <laughs> Number two, your teacher could burp louder than anybody else in the entire class. <laughs> Number three, your I love this one because if you do it in a school, all the teachers kind of look at each other very shiftily. Uh, Number three, you could be, your teacher could be outrageously cheeky to the head. Uh, yeah. Number four, your teacher could do a backwards flip into the classroom. <laughs> Number five, your teacher could announce that she is giving up teaching for an easier and less stressful job, such as being in the SAS. <laughs> Number six, your teacher could hand out bundles of 50 pound notes for everyone in the class. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number seven, uh, your teacher could ask you what she should write in your school report. Mm. That's right, yes. Number eight, this is a very difficult one. I've never met a teacher who's managed it yet, but uh, here we go. Your teacher could remember everybody's names all year round and not get them wrong once. Mm. <laughs> Number nine, your teacher could come to school by private jet. And number ten, your teacher could saw one of the other teachers in half. <laughs> right, and you'd like a disgusting list now, would you? Well, I, I mean, I don't want to give you the impression that I just do disgusting and unpleasant things about teachers. Um, this one, I feel, is rather like a poem, you know, it's, it's kind of like a poem. Lots of puns for the literacy people out there. Lots of language use. Ten utterly disgusting crisp flavours. Number one, sneeze an onion. Number two, salt and bogey. Number three, snail cocktail. Number four, dog drool and vinegar. Number five, smoky hedgehog. Number six, curried hamster. No, it's not as bad as you think, actually. Number seven, I'm afraid I can't do number seven. Uh, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> I've been run out of several local education authorities after doing number seven. I, it's just so appalling that if you, you know, if your parents found out. Uh, oh. uh, there you go. Oh, okay, as my wife would say, yeah, men were all weak. I can do it. There you go. So. Number seven. I mean, I did warn you. Number seven. Garlic and old teacher trainer socks. Number eight, beef and bogeys. Number nine, also known as the reception class special, cheese and vomit. Reception teachers, they're all flashing on that now, aren't they? They're all, oh, no. And number ten, my personal favourite, ready, snotted. Now, isn't that just the most disgusting thing you've ever heard, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty much so. Now, I'm here today in Scotland, and Scotland is one of my favourite places. I love coming to Scotland. I've been quite a few times. Um, and the one, the one thing I always wanted to do was to, was to write a story that had a bit of a Scottish flavour. Um, 
And I've, I suggested this idea to a company called Barrington Stoke, which is based in Edinburgh. I'm sure some of you have heard of it. And they do really great books, lots of books. I've written quite a few for them. I've written a book called The Two Jacks for them and a book called The Dirty Dozen, which is about a football story. But I've always liked, and you have to do the Romans, don't you, when you're at school? Uh, and I've always liked Roman stories. And I grew up reading um, lots of historical fiction. I brought one with me because I'm going to read it again. This is a story by a great writer called uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe. Uh, it's called Dawnwind. It's about the end of the Roman occupation of Britain. It's got some fantastic pictures in it by a wonderful artist called Charles Keeping. I think you can still get this book. But I liked all those stories about Rome and the Celts. And I always think, oh, the Celts are up there north of Hadrian's Wall, aren't they? And of course, now that uh, you've got a change of government, you'll be rebuilding Hadrian's Wall to keep us out, won't you, from the south. I did say that I'm quite happy with that, as long as you have George Galloway back. But that's OK. <laughs> but there you go. Uh, <laughs> is that a condition we can't go for, no? Uh, ooh. Uh, <laughs> So I suggested to my editor at Barrington Stoke that I would love to write a book about Hadrian's Wall. And a couple of years ago, I read a wonderful book about the Emperor Hadrian. Everyone thinks about the wall, Hadrian's Wall, um, which I'm sure you've done in school, but no one thinks about the Emperor Hadrian and why he built it. And I think people tend to think that Hadrian's Wall was built just because uh, it was the Romans wanting to keep the Scots, the Celts, out of Britain out of the rest of Britain, from the Roman bit. But in fact, when I read Hadrian, the book about Hadrian, that's not exactly the case. What it was is that the Emperor Trajan, who came before Hadrian, was a really aggressive emperor, and he conquered lots of places. He conquered a country called Romania, and that's why it's called Romania, because they made it into a Roman province. Um, and he conquered all sorts of places, and had lots of wars, and then he died, and Hadrian was his successor, and Hadrian thought that the Roman Empire couldn't deal with all these wars anymore. It was a bad thing. So he went around the whole empire, looking at all the borders, to try and work out where they should stop. And he came to Britain in, I think it was AD 122, uh, and he went, came up uh, to this part of the world, because the Romans had tried to conquer the whole of what is now Scotland. They'd gone up as far as uh, Inverness. There was a big battle up near Inverness in the first century AD. And he tried to, and it, they said, but it's too hard. The people up there are too tough, they said. They're too difficult to conquer. So they pulled back to Hadrian's Wall, uh, to the kind of area where Hadrian's Wall is. And when Hadrian got there, he said, what I'm going, I want you to do is to build a wall here so that that puts a limit to where the Roman Empire is. And that means we're not going any further. So it wasn't really just to keep out you know, raiders from the north. It was actually to say, this is as far as the Roman Empire goes and no further. And it kind of grew into like a trading barrier. And it was a place where the Romans met the people from the north of Britain and traded with them as well. So it was partly military, but it had a lot of other things going for it as well. So I thought it would be really interesting to write a story about it. So I wrote this story and I had this idea about a boy who encounters Hadrian, a boy from the Celtic tribe of the Votadini, who I think were the Celtic tribe that were in this area, uh, in the lowlands, the eastern lowlands of Scotland. And they became later, I think, um, uh, they were called, uh, the Welsh called them the Gododin. It was the same kind of word. And there was a big poem written in about the 7th century AD called the Gododin, which is about the, the people of this area. But I had this idea for a, a boy who was um, uh, living here and met Hadrian when Hadrian came to build the wall. And uh, what the boy, the story is, the boy feels that Hadrian is coming, the Romans are coming back to conquer and kill, because that's what the Romans had done before. 
and he decides that he wants to try and kill Hadrian um, to stop him doing it. He's only a young lad, and, uh, and that's why the book is called Assassin. So if you like, shall I read you a bit? It's, I mean, I, you know, we'll do, go back to the funny stuff in a minute, but I, you know, I feel I ought to do this as well. So this one's called, uh, it's the first chapter, it's called uh, Leader of the Pack. Uh, the boy was running down the forest path. He was following the tracks that a wolf pack had left. Suddenly he stopped. He dropped to one knee and grinned. A wolf left the pack here, father, the boy said. He was peering at the ground. You could see his breath in the cold air. One set of tracks goes off that way, he began. He pointed into the forest. But look, the rest keep straight on. You're right, Owen, said the boy's father. His name was Maddock. Both of them had long hair tied back, and they were both wearing thick green tunics and trousers. Maddock looked at the tracks. There's blood there too, he said. Well done, my son. You must have hit the wolf with your spear after all. Owen's grin grew even bigger. The people of his tribe thought that killing a wolf was a great deed. Owen's tribe was the Votadini. They'd lived in the north of Britain for as long as anyone could remember. Their land was rich and full of hills and forests. The Votadini were farmers and they bred cattle and sheep. But there were wolves in the woods. In winter, the nights were full of the sound of their hungry howling and they came sniffing around the sheep pens like grey ghosts. So the men of the tribe sat up in the dark hours to protect the flocks. And this year, for the first time, Owen had been with the men. He thought again of the moment when he'd seen the wolves. He'd thrown his spear at them and raised the alarm. The wolves had run off. Then, at first light, he and his father had set out to track them down. Come on, father, said Owen, and he jumped to his feet. Let's go and finish the beast off. It can't have got very far if it's hurt, can it? No, Owen, we're not doing that, said Maddock. He was walking, down, walking along the path, looking down at the main set of tracks. We follow the pack. Why, father, said Owen. He was angry. In his mind, he could already see himself with his own wolf skin. The people of the village would be impressed. Can't we just get this one now, then hunt the rest of them later? But the wolf might be dead already, said Maddock. Even if it isn't, it's not the leader. The one we need to kill is still out there at the head of the pack. I don't understand, said Owen with a scowl. He hated it when his father talked to him as if he were a child, like his little sister Caddy. It's simple, said Maddock with a sigh. Cut a man's head off and his body is useless. Well, it's just the same with the wolf pack. Kill their leader and they don't know what to do, at least until a new leader takes over. Owen scowled even more. He opened his mouth to answer back, but his father suddenly looked up like a deer who senses a hunter nearby. Did you hear that? Maddock whispered. There it is again. Owen's father was scowling himself now. He put a finger to his lips. He stepped off the path and nodded to Owen to follow him. They crept between the trees. Soon they were at the far edge of the forest and peered out. Maddock made sure they stayed hidden. In front of them was a valley with a river running through it. Owen drew in his breath sharply. Just next to them at the edge of the forest was a warrior sitting on a pony. As they watched, the man gave a long, low whistle and two more warriors came galloping up the slope towards him on their ponies. They're men of the Brigantes tribe from the south, whispered Maddock. Owen stared at his father. Did he think Owen was that stupid? Of course he knew what tribe the warriors came from. He could tell from the patterns of the blue tattoos on their faces and the shapes of their shields and spear blades. He knew the Brigantes' lands were right next to his own people's farms, and Owen knew that they were meant to stay there on their side. What are they doing here on our land? He whispered back to his father. Look, they look like advanced scouts to me, Maddock said softly. He looked angry. And you know who the Brigantes work for, don't you? Then Owen heard a new sound, a steady tramp, tramp, tramp. He felt the ground shake under his feet. Owen looked across the valley. What he saw was terrible. 
there was a long line of soldiers. They were marching over the hill down the valley. The red crests of their helmets were nodding, and the cold winter sunlight glinted off their shields and armor. The Romans were coming. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, lots more happens after that, and there is an assassination attempt. So um, uh, I enjoyed writing. It was a lot of fun to do. And I, I really, really like historical fiction. I did write another book about, um, about uh, the Roman period, which is out of print at the moment, but it's coming back next year. It's called Little Flame and the Great Queen. And this is about a girl, a little girl, who meets Boudicca, who um, was the great queen of the Iceni, who rose against the, the Romans and burnt down London, among other things, which wasn't very nice of her, but there you go. So I enjoyed doing that, and um, I'd like to write another Roman story, but next year, in fact, I've just agreed to do it, is I'm going to write a Viking story, because I like the Vikings. And, of course, you must do the Vikings as well, don't you? Because one thing I always notice when I come to Scotland is there's an awful lot of red-haired people in Scotland, you know, so... All descendants of the Vikings, I'm sure. They're all from Norway and Denmark and places like that. So that's, that's the kind of thing I like to do. Now, would you like to do the interactive volunteering session? Right, now I need some volunteers. Uh, hands up, those who'd like to volunteer. Okay, sometimes I pick the ones who don't put their hands up. But sometimes I do. But there you go. So we'll start with my friends from Korsdorfin School, because I met these earlier. And we'll have that one there. Now, we're going to do it one at a time. So put your hands down. A come. Come stand over here. Just here. Just there like that. And your name is? Jenny. Jenny. Now, Jenny. Um, I've picked Jenny out because what I'm going to do is I'm going to, instead of telling you how I write a story, um, yeah, okay. Is that better? Would that be better? Yes, that's better. Um, instead of telling you how I write a story, I'm going to show you. Um, actually, that's not better. I'll just, I'll just speak more loudly. <laughs> um... Uh, and I thought I'd start with Jenny because I looked at Jenny and I could see that we're exactly the same, right? You can tell that, can't you, just looking at us? Really? <laughs> Are you married, Jenny? No? Okay. Um, now, Jenny is the point at which everything starts. And I picked Jenny out because I could tell just by looking at her that she is, like me, a genius, okay? You can see ideas sparking from her head. If there were no lights on here, blue flashes would be coming out of her head as she thinks of ideas. An idea as good as that one, as, as good as Assassin. So we all start with ideas, us writers. Um, and Jenny's going to start the whole process off for us. And she's going to hold my magic pen that I buy in the magic shop Ryman's in, near where I live. Um, and that's an important part of having an idea. You get an idea, what's the most important thing to do with it, everybody? Write it down. So we've got the idea. Jenny's got the pen. And we're going to write the, the idea down. And I get lots of ideas all the time. So, um, so when you, one of the questions would be, where do you get your ideas from? I don't know. All over the place. People I know, people I meet, people like Jenny. Jenny will definitely go in a story now. Um, ideas flashing out of my head all the time. So we write the idea down, for which I'll need another volunteer. Okay. Um, it's going to be hard to pick people from the back, but it'll have to be that one there. Yeah. In the white. No. Yeah. There. Yeah. yeah. You. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, that one there, sorry, this one here, yeah, this, no, oh. <laughs> go on, yes, he'll come. Next time, we'll see. And your name is? Craig. Craig, right, Craig. Stand there. I always meet someone called Craig in Scotland, I don't know why. Stand there, Craig, next to Jenny, she doesn't bite. Uh, I don't think she does, anyway. So what you need if you're going to write your idea down, I used to write ideas down on bits of paper, old envelopes. If I was in a school, I might write it on a passing child. But then you have to... 
have to take the child home with you, bring it up, you know, send it to university, you know, pay for the wedding, all that kind of stuff. So, so now I use notebooks, little notebooks. Here's a notebook that I use. I carry around with me all the time. Um, Craig's going to hold the notebook. I always put it open on that page there. I keep lots of notebooks and I scribble ideas then. And just an idea, uh, get lots of ideas in schools when I go. Here's an idea. Teacher on a diet can be made to divulge school secrets with bribes of chocolate. As that's why, you know, when you go to a school, you sit in a staff room, and what do you see? Lots of lady teachers talking about their diets while they eat chocolate biscuits. So I've always wanted to put a character like that in a story. I will do one day. It's going to be called uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Teacher. Um, uh, and that's where I write my ideas down. Sometimes they're in there a long time. Sometimes it's a couple of weeks. Sometimes 10 years. I did a book called uh, The Magnificent Mummies, and the idea was in the book, the notebook, for 10 years before I turned it into a story. So... Now we'll need another volunteer because we're going to develop the story. It's going to be, yes, that girl there from Kostorfin, yeah, in the red. Yeah, no, uh, look, look, that one, yeah, that one there, that one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I saw her shoot her hand up. <clears throat> okay, and your name is? Ribby. 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 Okay, there you go. You stand there, right? You're getting a picture. We've got an equal opportunities act here. So. Now the next stage is... Uh, I develop the story a bit more, um, and I use a slightly bigger notebook, which everybody's going to hold. Here you go. Uh, and I scribble down lots of things. If I think an idea is going to be good, I kind of like with Assassin, I just kind of play with it. I've got a friend who writes children's books, and she says the nicest part about writing a story is it's like playing a game with your imaginary friends when you're young. You just sit and fantasize, but the difference is we scribble it down and have a lot of fun with it, you know, and enjoy it. This is the creative bit. And the trouble is when you do story writing at school often, uh, teachers are going on and on about, and parents, you know, league tables, you've got to get it right, and it's, you know, tests, exams, sats. Uh, and actually, everybody I know that's at this festival, this whole festival exists because people like me and all the other people who write and illustrate books do it because we love it, and it's fun. I really, really loved writing Assassin. It was hard work in parts, but I loved doing it. So this is the stage after I've thought of the idea and written it down, I kind of scribble away, having fun, creating, being expressive, which is the thing you should do if you want to do anything, really, just enjoy it. Um, my friend who talks about that, actually her name is Jackie Wilson, so she's reasonably successful, I suppose. There you go. Um, so, but then I get to the point where I think, yeah, this is a really serious story, it's going to work, I need to get really serious with it, for which I'll need another volunteer. Okay, well, now we, we need a boy, don't we? Yeah, because girl, boy, girl, boy. And we'll have that one there, on the end, there, that's all right, yeah. Okay, very good, takes up his position. They're very quick in Scotland, I've noticed, very quick, there you go. And your name is? Blair. Blair, Blair, Craig Blair, yeah, I must be in Scotland, there you go. Um, next stage, big notebook, okay. Um, right, there you go, Blair, you hold that. Um, <clears throat> There are two types of writers. Uh, there are those who are kind of wildly creative, like Jackie. She just writes and writes and writes and writes and then pours it all out and then fiddles about with it afterwards. And then there are the other kind, the sad little boys who listen to their teachers when they were at school when their teacher said, you must plan your work and do a rough draft. And then fair copies and stuff like that. And of course, I've always been enthralled to the women in my life, you know, who tell me to just make sure that's clean before I come downstairs. Um, so I plan. I do a lot of planning, a lot of planning. And I like to plan. I, when I did Assassin, I planned the whole thing out, every chapter. 
So I knew what was going to happen. Because I kind of feel it's like a road map. I like it to be a road map. It's like if I was driving from where I live to Scotland, I would get the maps out and look and where I was going to go. And it gives me, it's okay, so I don't have to keep stopping and asking people where, I, you know, where to go. So it's kind of like that. It's, I like the feeling when I sit at my desk in my 68-bedroom mansion in the Beverly Hills of South London where I live, uh, over my computer, the blank screen. I like to think that I know where I'm going you know, with the story. So every day I have the plan. And when I finish what I'm writing at the, you know, on the computer, I write a little plan of what I'm going to do the next day. So when I start, I don't have that problem of it's a blank screen or a blank piece of paper. What am I going to do now? So as you see, I also say, of course you can see this is the worst handwriting that anyone has ever had in the history of the human race. That's right. Yeah, you'd agree? Yeah? Uh, but they, well, you know, I mean, I do, think, I do think that it's important to remember, kids, that if you've got really, really bad handwriting, then one day you'll be rich and famous like me. Okay. That's not what I'm supposed to say, is it? So, right. Another volunteer, please. Okay. We need a girl, perhaps um, someone from this side. And we're going to have to have, we're going to have to have uh, that one there. Yeah, that one there. Yeah, there you come. Are we all right, you lot? Yeah, okay, yeah. You're very good. I'm very impressed with you. Oh, right, we've got another one. <laughs> oh, well, another time, okay. And you are? I'm Orla. Orla. Come and stand here, Orla. Terrific. Now, in my 84-bedroom match in the Beverly Hills of South London, where I live, uh, I get to this stage, plan it all ready to go. I then sit uh, and start working on my computer. Now, this is a first. No one has seen this story before. This is my next book for um, Barrington Stoke. So what I do is I type away on my computer, um, and although my handwriting is very, very bad, um, everything is absolutely perfect. And this is what it looks like when it's done. Okay? Now that, neat, yeah? Okay? Yeah, pretty neat, eh? Yeah. So, all is going to hold that. It's actually a story called Harold Hardnut, which is about the legendary Viking king Harold Hardrada, who was six foot six, blonde, and careered around Europe, killing people and looting things. And he's a hero of mine, but you know, there you go. Being politically correct like I am, you know, soft liberal. Um, so, uh, that's what I write, and it takes me a long time. Actually, the planning can take a long time. This took me quite a long time. Probably took me about two weeks to write that. It's quite a long story. Um, but I go over it again and again and again. I read bits out. Uh, I'm sad. Um, like most men, if there's a fight scene, I like to get up and act it out. You know, I kind of charge around the, the study, pretending I've got a sword and a shield, just so I can get it right. Uh, do the voices. I do all the voices, all the accents. Uh, and then eventually I print it out and I send it to the publisher, for which I'll need another volunteer. I need a boy at the back. Perhaps a teacher could choose a boy at the back for me. Yeah. Yeah, good lad. Well done. Okay. And you are? Matty. Matty. All right, send there, Matty. Now, the next stage is I have to send it to a publisher. Now, I work with lots of publishers, apart from Barrington Stoke. Um, and um, this, I mean, I'll, I'll put that in, but I'll show you a different book in a minute. Uh, but one of the publishers I do a lot with is a publisher called Egmont. They publish Lemony Snicket and Winnie the Pooh and all sorts of people. And I send it to my editor at the publisher. Her name's Rachel. They're called Egmont Books. Um, Rachel is an editor, and their job is to be a bit like a teacher with writers. They read your story and scribble on it. You know, don't like this bit, change that bit. This character doesn't work, move that around. Of course, 
Yeah, people like Philip Pullman and um, J.K. Rowling and people like that, they have to do a lot of rewriting. I never do. It's always, you know, it's always fine. And I usually get a letter from my editor at, um, at the publisher and it says things like, I'll read it out to them, okay? It says, uh, Dear Tony, many thanks for sending us your fabulous story. Uh, 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 no misbehaving allowed. That's the one I'll show you in a minute. Uh, it's the best story we've ever read, much better than that Harry Potter. There you go. So, um, so then we kind of fiddled about with it a bit, this one, and then it was okay, and it was ready to go into production, for which we'll need another volunteer, and it's going to have to be my friend over there who got done last time. Yeah, 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 with the dark hair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I can't leave with anybody upset. <laughs> Okay, and your name is? Canny. 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 Nice to meet you, Canny. There you go. You can hold this. Okay, ready? Let me just show them first. You can all see that? Now, I work with a lot of illustrators. Um, they're all prima donnas. They all think they're wonderful. You know, it's, uh, it's basically the story that counts, and they just come along later and do a few fancy pictures. But anyway, you know, I have to work with these uh, illustrators. This is, I did a book, lots of books with a guy called Martin Chatterton, uh, and um, what they do is, uh, they, the editor has someone also working there called a designer. The designer designs the book. It doesn't just appear the way you think it does. Someone has to decide how big the word, the letters are going to be, how big the title is going to be, how many pages are going to have, how many pictures, where the pictures are going to go. And to do that, they get the artist to do black and white illustrations like that so they can put the whole book together in a rough form. Okay? So this is a book called No Misbehaving Allowed. Okay? Uh, and we do all that, and I read it and scribble on it. Martin, this is the worst piece of work you've ever done. Are you never going to learn? You know, you must be an idiot, all those kinds of things. And we work very closely together. He, we get on very well. In fact, he's, although he has just moved to Australia. I don't know why, but there you go. Um, so we do that, and eventually he goes back to Martin. He has to do the pictures properly, for which we'll need another volunteer. Now, someone at the back can choose me another boy from over there. Send me a boy. Good lad, well done. And you are Stephen, at the end, Stephen. Stephen gets to do the flashy bit. Okay. And that's the same pictures, but done in colour. There you go. See that? Can you hold those up a bit so everyone can see like that? Over there and over there. Right? And Martin does the whole book again in, in colour. And... Uh, he does this these days, like a lot of artists, he actually draws the outlines, scans it into a computer, then does the colour on a computer. So like I said to him, you know, what do you do? You know, I could replace you with a robot, heaven's sake. There you go. Stephen's going to hold that. And um, we look at this one last time just to make sure everything's okay. Because it could be, you know, they could make a mistake, they could put the picture in the wrong place at the printers. And if they did that and the book was useless, you'd have to destroy it all. So if you print like 50,000 copies of a book and it's wrong, they would have to destroy them all, pulp them, and do it again, which costs a lot of money. So we have to check it very carefully, read it just to make sure. And even so, sometimes mistakes get through. I've had the odd book with a misspelling in it, but you know, generally it's okay. And then we say, yeah, fine, you can print the book, for which we'll need one last volunteer. And it's going to have to be from my friends at Corstoffin, and it can be you. There you go. Oh, dear life. One of the lessons we have to learn today, kids, is that life is not fair. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and your name is? Bronwyn. Bronwyn. Nice to meet you. Nice Welsh name, Bronwyn. There you go. 
And the thing about the Votadini is they probably spoke a form of early Welsh, actually. So Bronwen at the end means white, doesn't it? Bronwen. So there you go. Uh, and there's the book. And just to show you that it's the same book. There you go. Same picture. There you go. See that? And Bronwen's going to hold that. Right, okay, we go back down the other end, where we started. Now we remember Jenny is our genius. Jenny the genius, that's a poem in itself, isn't it? Idea, write it down in a notebook, playing with it, getting a bit serious, writing up properly, fair copy. Letter from the publisher, much better than Harry Potter. What a genius you are, Tony, there you go. Design, production, final stage of production, book. Now how long do you think that took from beginning to end? Two weeks, not two weeks, no? A year. Very good. It was a year. Uh, some books take longer. Um, Jackie writes her books very quickly. I think someone told me three to four months, and then they're out quite quickly. Uh, Philip Pullman takes a long time. He's very slow. I'm a slow writer. Although I've produced a lot of books, it's all I do, but I actually only write 500 words a day, so uh, probably only... Two pages a day is my tops. But if you keep doing two pages every day, you get there in the end. Um, the man who wrote uh, The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, so I think it took him 12 years to write it from beginning to end. So from his idea to the point where it was finished was 12 years. Whereas for some other people, it might be a month. Or when I wrote Assassin, it was probably about two months. This bit is always about a year Six, between six months and a year, depending on what, what happens. So there you go, that's how it's done. Let's have a round of applause for our volunteers. Right, you can sit down now. Well done, okay. Well done, thank you very much. You are very good, brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Good kids, thank you. Are all the kids this nice in uh, Scotland? Yeah. Can I take a couple home? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone in particular? <laughs> okay, well, we'll do some questions, but would you like me to read you something disgusting again? Yeah. Oh, and just to, do the, just to do the promotion bit, I did another book for um, uh, Barrington Stoke, which I really like, Alien. I love doing that. It's, it's got, you know, fighting and aliens and stuff in it. I'd, my son, I dedicated it to my son because he likes all that. And I've done a version of the Scottish play as well, which was a lot of fun, yeah. So I enjoyed that, so. Um, a disgusting one, or would you like another teacher one first? Yeah. Ten things teachers do when they're not at school. <laughs> they're all looking a bit shifty now, aren't they? <laughs> Number one, they plan the most boring lessons they can. You never knew that, did you? Number two, this is the one that makes the teachers really, really look shifty, actually. They make little dolls resembling the head teacher and stick pins in them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I've been, I've been in schools where I've done that and it's gone very quiet. <laughs> no names, no pack drill, no. Nothing north of the border, anyway. Number three, they eat all the sweets they've confiscated from their pupils. Yeah, well, we all knew that, we all knew that. Number four, they dream about becoming dictator of the entire universe. Some of them already are, yeah. Number five, they practice writing sarcastic comments on schoolwork and reports. Some of them go on to be editors, actually. So. Number six, they phone up other teachers and swap tips on how to make their lessons even more boring. 
Number seven, they wish they were children again and could run around the playground having a good time, being really cheeky to all the teachers. <laughs> Number eight, they go to top secret government training centres somewhere in the highlands where they're taught how to make their pupils' lives as miserable as possible. <laughs> it's like kind of the FBI place at Quantico, you know. It's kind of... Number nine, they fill out job applications for any job not involving teaching or kids. And number ten, they think about going to work the next day and cry a lot. There you go. <laughs> and uh, a disgusting one. You'd like a disgusting one. Okay. Right, we've got... Um, we did crisp flavours, didn't we? We did... Um, Ten, ten things, ooh, uh, ten unusual and disgusting fast foods. Up here in Scotland where you've got a very healthy eating policy these days, I'm pleased to see. <laughs> no laughter. Uh, number one, I've had all these in schools, you know. Number one, rat in a roll. Number two, rancid the yucky yak yogurt drink. Number three, hamster burger. <laughs> Number four, budgie in a bap. That's it, just the feathers getting your teeth, that's all. Number five, and I have to say my lovely wife thought of this one, not me, and it shows a particular turn of mind, actually. Number five, pot poodle. <laughs> just add boiling water. <laughs> Number six, snake and vinegar crisps. Yeah, I can't stand vinegar myself, there you go. Number seven, gerbil jam butties. Number eight, chocolate chip chihuahuas. Number nine, terrapin toasties. Number ten, my personal favourite again, kitten kebabs. <laughs> Just on a skewer like that. Right, now does anybody have any questions? Remembering, of course, we have to leave enough time for the treat. Okay? Now, did you want to know what the treat was? Yeah. Well, I'm still not going to tell you. <laughs> and no, I've never been a teacher. I'm just naturally cruel. <laughs> okay, questions. If you'd like to take a question from anybody. Uh, that one there, yeah. That one there. This lad. Um, for your disgusting fast foods, why didn't you do puppy patty? Puppy patty? That'll go in the reprint, okay? You'll have to tell me what your name is and I'll send you a check. All right, another one up there. Yes, there. Yeah. Um, how how long? What? Um, how long did it take to write your longest book? Um, I did write a couple of football books, uh, and each one of those took me about nine months, so quite a long time. There were two hundred and twenty-four pages, um, but I do mostly shorter books because I, I like to get them finished. So, uh, um, anybody else? Uh, yes, there, up there, 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 there. Yeah, yeah anyone there? What inspired you to write? Um, what inspired me to write? I always wanted to write. I think, to be honest, and I probably shouldn't say this, I never wanted to have a proper job. Um, I didn't want to work in an office. I didn't want to work. I didn't want to do what other people told me to do. And I liked, I really, really did like the feeling of being in control of my own destiny. Um, and the other side of it was that I loved write, reading. When I was at primary school, I had a wonderful teacher called Mr. Smith. He used to read to us every day. He read us The Hobbit, it took a year. Um, you know, that's the one about Bilbo before The Lord of the Rings. And I just loved it. And from then on, I went off and read The Lord of the Rings. And I loved, as I said, historical stories. I like stories with you know, big Vikings you know, knocking seven bells out of each other. So, and I loved all that. And I just thought that's the only thing I wanted to do. So 
from the time I was about 13, it was, it was just what I wanted to do. But it was the two things, really. Wanting to be my own boss and not having to do what other people told me to. And also loving stories. And poetry. I like poetry as well. The man who's on here after me for, is an adult session is one of my heroes, Tony Harrison. So I'm coming back to do what you do. I'm going to sit there and listen to him and then ask him a question and get him to sign a book for me. Because th I think he's a fantastic poet. So someone at the back. At the back. Um, what was your first book? Uh, the first book I wrote um, is going to be reissued by Barrington Stoke next year. It's a football story called One Nil. And it's about a boy who skives off... Uh, well, there's an old version of it, which was around for a long time, which you've probably seen. But Barrington Stoke are doing a new version of it next year. And it's based on something that really happened to a friend of mine. He skived off school to go and watch the England squad at training. Why would you bother? <laughs> Especially after last night. Um, and um, uh, I always thought it would make a very funny story, so uh, I wrote that. And that was my first book. I actually wrote it in October, November of 1982, 25 years ago. So, yes. Which one of your books do you like the best? Um, that's a very difficult question. It's, it's like being asked, which of your children is your favourite? You know, you, you can't do that. You know, um, uh, I like all my books. I've always tried very hard to make each of my books as the best book I can do at that time. Um, but I do have a soft spot for a few of them. I like a book called The Frankenstein Teacher. Anyone ever seen that? Yeah? Um, I like that. I enjoy doing that because I've read it in a lot of schools and there's a bit in it where the, hamps, the, the school's class hamster gets run over and all the kids will go, ah! even the naughty ones who've been at the back poking each other in the head, you know, they go, ah! And I love it because you know, it always has a big effect on kids. So I like that one. I like the Dilly the Dinosaur stories because they're all based on my kids. Yes, we have a Diplodocus, a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and a Stegosaurus. Uh, um, I'm very, I and I really did enjoy doing Assassin. I loved it. And I, I really like doing historical stuff. So I'm going to do a bit more of that. So someone over here at the, at the back. Um, do you have any disgusting secrets about any other author any other in authors? Britain? Any other Authors in Great Britain. In Great Britain. Well, yes, I do, but I don't think I can reveal them now, I'm afraid. See me afterwards and I'll, so I'll, reveal, I'll reveal a few things afterwards. No, they're all, they're all wonderful people, I have to say. They're all wonderful people. <laughs> Someone over there? Yeah, yeah, up there. What, what gave you an idea to write? Um, I don't know. I suppose, I can't remember exactly why. I suppose when I was at primary school with that teacher who was, who was reading us a lot of stories, he was very encouraging. You see, my... Uh, my mum and dad got divorced when I was about seven, which was very unusual then. It was a long time ago. Not many people did in those days. And, and I kind of, I didn't see my dad for about three or four years, not very much. And this teacher, Mr. Smith, was a really nice man. And I think I kind of hero-worshipped him because he was a bloke, you know, he was a man. And uh, he really liked stories and reading. And I thought, well, if a bloke likes it, well, you know, why shouldn't I? And I just got into it and I, I, I learned early on that you know, reading a story is a fantastic escape. You know, you can imagine things and you're going on this journey into another world. And, um, and there's a bit in an Alan Alberg story called The Giant Baby about and he, the characters thinking about stories he likes. And he says, it was the kind of story that was so good I didn't want it to end. Um, and when I did finish it, I wanted to go back and start it straight away. And I always had that feeling. It's like, you know, my son likes movies and DVDs and... You know, it's when you're watching a film that is so good, you can't think of anything else but what's in front of you. I get that from books. Um, I was reading a book before I came today. When I go back and have lunch, I'll, you know, push everything out of the way, have a book, 
Um, it's just what I do. You know, I, I, it's, it's my entire life. Uh, someone over there. Uh, at the back, yeah, at the back. Um, would you like any of your books to be made into movies? Ah, well, the Dilly the Dinosaur stories uh, were made into a cartoon series on um, BBC years ago. So that was fun, that was exciting. And I've just signed the contract for um, a film adaptation of a book of mine that I wrote with my friend Martin. He did the pictures, a graphic novel. Uh, I wrote it seven or eight years ago. Um, and it's just been bought by Cartoon Network, and they're going to adapt it into a film for Halloween 2008. And I have to say, it's, it's a deeply disgusting story. So, um, and I can't tell you what it is, because it's intimately connected to the treat. Okay? And I'm getting to the feeling that I really ought to tell you what the treat is. Do you think I should tell you? But I'm not going to. I think we've got time for two or three more questions over this side. Yes, yes. What was your favourite book you ever made? Oh, I don't, I don't really have a complete favourite. I've got, as I said over there, soft spots for some. There's a Frankenstein teacher, the Dilly stories. There's a Dilly book called Dilly and the Goody Goody, which I really, really like. There was a picture book I wrote years and years ago called uh, Look Out, He's Behind You, which is a lift-the-flap version of the Little Red Riding Hood story, uh, which I absolutely loved doing. I thought it was a really, really good book. Um, can't find it now, it's gone, I think. Uh, didn't bring it with me. Um, but it's got Lift the Flaps, and it's the wolf chasing Little Red Riding Hood. And um, eventually, the, uh, and in fact, at the end, I've got the wolf locked away in a shed. And when I read it to schools in classes, I always say to the kids, I'm afraid I can't open the door where the wolf is. And they go, oh, go on, open the door. I can't. Because the last time I, wrote, I, I opened the door, the big bad wolf magically came to life, jumped out of the book, ran around the room, and ate two of the teachers. And I always say to the kids, and of course, you don't want any harm to come to the teachers, do you? So I can't open the door. Open the door! Now! So we do that. So that's a favourite, because I've read it, and I must be hundreds of schools, I think. Yes, someone, uh, anyone, anyone will do. You choose. Um, how do you feel when you're writing your books? Um, I kind of, when you're really into it, it's really great, because you kind of just concentrate it can be very hard sometimes, you know, really having to work out how to express something in the right way. And I like stories that have got kind of clues in them at the beginning about what's going to happen at the end that you don't notice, which is you know, a way of doing it. So, uh, but that's quite difficult because you're kind of not quite sure what to put at the beginning to make the end work properly. So there's a lot of thought. Um, uh, the beginning is always really, really hard. That's the hardest part, getting to the beginning. The middle's pretty hard too, and then the ending's really hard as well. So, so I, I do enjoy it. If I'm not enjoying it at some level, then it's probably not a very interesting book. It's probably not going to be interesting to other people. So someone at the back over that side, yeah? Yeah? Um, I'm from Sheen's, and we've got four questions. Go on, then. Um, the first one is, why did you call your cat Rufus? Uh, well, everybody thinks it's because Rufus was a ginger tom, but in fact, Rufus was named after a character in one of the greatest films of all time. A uh, very intellectual film that, you know, often comes up in top tens. It's called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And there's a character in that called Rufus, a dude who can play the guitar, 
And I spent a whole summer with my son when he was about seven, going around irritating my wife because we would say, excellent, whoa, dude. <laughs> so we named the cat Rufus. Sadly, Rufus passed away a couple of months ago. And I cried. I really did cry. So, uh, next question. What is your favourite children's book? Um, I think my all-time favourite children's book is also by Rosemary Sutcliffe. I've got it at home. I bought a first edition, or my wife bought me a first edition of it recently. It's called The Eagle of the Ninth, which is about a young boy whose dad has gone missing when he was a Roman soldier with a whole legion that vanished in Scotland. They came up to Scotland and no one ever saw them again, which often happens to people from England, I hear. So. And what he does is he goes north to find out what happened to his dad's legion and he travels all around the lowlands, kind of between the bit between Hadrian's Wall and the Antonine Wall, the Firth, the Fourth, of, you know, and up there. And then um, eventually finds out that the, what did happen, and he has to go to somewhere. I think it's on, actually, if you look at the map in the book, it's the Mull of Kintyre, where there was a tribe called the Epidae um, in that period. And, and it's absolutely a wonderful book. It's about boys and their dads. And it was important to me because I didn't see my dad a lot. And it was about a boy going to look for a dad. And it occurred to me recently. I thought, well, why did I like that book? It's cause about a boy searching for his dad. And there's a chase and fighting. And, and the, the, the Celts, the way she describes the Celts, they're not evil. They're, they're, she brilliantly describes them really brilliantly. It's quite a difficult book. And I probably it's kind of really 11, 12 is about the best age to read it. But it's my all-time favorite book. Next question. Um, how long does it take to write a thriller? Uh, thrillers can be quite hard. I mean, if you're going to write a proper thriller for an older age group, I'd say it would be hard to do a good thriller in less than six months. And I do know people who spend up to about a year or longer. Because you have to get the plot right. The plot being the secret plan of your story. That's why we call it a plot. Like the gunpowder plot, it's a secret. You keep all the clues secret and you have to join them up. And plotting is very, very difficult. And that's why it can take a long time. Because it's like working out a puzzle in your head before you write the story, and then making sure that it works when you actually write it. Uh, last question. Do you let your children read your books before you publish them? Uh, well, they're all grown up now. I mean, they're 29, 26, and nearly 24. Um, and when they were younger, they did read my books, but they would only say things like, that was really great, Dad. Can I have some more pocket money? <laughs> so no, it was, I did read them some things. I try stuff out on my grandchildren. Now, I've got two grandchildren, Lily, who's eight, and Oscar, who's five. Uh, and they, actually, they say much the same thing, you know, so kind of, you know, are you going to buy me a present now? That's, uh, we got time for one more question. One more question. And I think it ought to be that girl there, sticking up her arm there, at the back, in the white, yeah, there, no, she's put her hand down now. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'll be around for a while, because if you want, you can ask me some more questions after. Do you like writing? The best question. What could it be? It has to be. I do. I do like it. It's, it's what I do. I couldn't possibly do anything else. Except if I really couldn't write anymore, I'd like to visit schools. That's what I would like to do. Because I do enjoy going to schools and meeting kids. Strangely enough, teachers don't understand that. But it's great because I can go in, wind them up, get them hysterical and leave. Which is what I'm doing today. I think, you know, possibly this... This level of hysteria could probably last to the end of the year. There you go. Right, now, would you like the treat? Yeah! Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, well, I really don't know. I mean, oh, well, I'll tell you what. I'll do, if I'll read you a poem, which is kind of like a SAT test, a standard author test. If you pass that test, I'll give you the treat, okay? 
Would you like to do that? Yeah. Alright, everybody sit up straight please. Cross your arms, cross your eyes. Look this way. Dear oh dear, a little bit of discipline, thank you. This poem is called Grandad. It's about my father-in-law, uh, which gives me enormous pleasure when I read it. <laughs> um, now, it's about Grandad, so you're going to play a role in the poem. What do you think you're going to be? You're going to be... A car, of course. There you go. So what you have to say is zoom all together now. One, two, three. Zoom! Very good. Everybody raise their right arms. That's on this side for you. And as you say zoom, you go like that. Okay? One, two, three. Zoom! Right, now that's the chorus. You've got to say it four times. I can't tell you when to do it. I'll have to give you a signal. The signal is the flying fickle finger of fate, which I usually leave at home in my 100-bedroom mansion in the Beverly Hills of South London. Uh, when you see that, you have to do zoom and the gesture. Ready? One, two, three. One, two, three. Yeah. One, two. Ah, and that's the, t that's the test element. I'm going to tease you. Sometimes I'm going to pretend to do it. And sometimes I will and sometimes I won't. So if you get it wrong just the once, I won't be able to give you the treat. Which is, of course, something I'm not going to tell you yet. Grandad, it's called. Ready? My granddad has big ears and a big nose. He has very white hair and very strange looking little toes. My granddad drives his car very fast. That's him going past. My granddad has a wart on his chin and a smile so big you feel you could fall into it. <laughs> My granddad drives his car very fast. That's him going past. My granddad likes to dig and pull up weeds in his garden all day long. When he spills something on the table, he says, I do beg your pardon. My granddad drives his car very fast. That's him going past. My granddad's tall and very thin, and everyone says, I look like him, but I haven't got a wart on my chin. My granddad drives his car very, 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 very badly. My granddad drives his car very, 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 very often. Oh, you think you're clever, don't you? Yeah. All right, yeah. I'll have one more go. That's a clue. <laughs> My granddad drives his car very, 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 very fast. Very good. That's him going past. Okay. Well, I suppose so, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask your lovely teachers if they think it's okay for you to have the treat. I mean, we have been cruel and horrible to the teachers today, so I'm afraid I can only do it if they say it's okay. Hands up, if, hands up the teachers who say we can do the treat. Okay? What's it worth? I mean, I usually, usually in a school, I say, all right, hands down, hands down. I want you all to put your hands on your hearts now, the children, and repeat after me. I promise, I promise, if I get the treat, if I get the treat to, be very nice, to be very nice to my teachers, to my teachers for, the rest of, for the rest of teachers to fill in the appropriate space, what is it, the rest of my life. Okay, right. Very good. Right, well, all right, I'll give you the treat. Now, when I tell you what the treat is, there will be two reactions. From the children, there will be a, oh, is that all? And from the teachers, there'll be a kind of a horrified squeak. Eek! Because what I'm going to do is, the treat is, I'm going to read you a poem. 
but it is the world's most disgusting poem. As certified in the Guinness Book of Records. There you go. But you have to sit very, very quietly for this last little bit. It's very short, like me, as my wife used to say. <laughs> to sit very quietly and wait. Okay. Shh. Get the full effect. Because actually, last time I read this in a school, two of the teachers fainted. <laughs> Bang. Okay. All right. It's called The Thing. Okay. And I got the idea from one of my favorite science fiction films of the 1950s The Thing. Okay. The Thing. See the teacher reel with horror. Hear the children squeal and scream. Watch them all retreat in terror from the thing that's not a dream. Listen to the slimy sliding. Hear the thing emerge some more. Feel the panic. Watch them hiding. Could they make it to the door? Is the thing an alien creature? Is that why the classroom froze? No. Get a tissue, said the teacher. The thing had come from Jason's nose. <laughs> Any Jasons in today? Sorry. Usually you usually have one or two Jasons, you know, people who claim they're Jasons. Right, um, and what I was going to say to you is that actually when someone asked me about films, that's, that's what's going to be a film. <laughs> I wrote that poem 20-odd years ago. I've read it in every school I've ever been in. And about eight years ago, an editor I worked with a lot said, did I have any ideas for a graphic novel series they were doing, comic strip book? I said, yeah, I do. And I'd always wanted to turn that into a film, into a, into a graphic novel. So I wrote a story called The Thing That Came From Jason's Nose, in which the thing comes out. Jason is being bullied by a horrible boy. And Jason flicks the bogey away, and it lands in a drain and is swept away in the sewers and encounters some radioactive water leaking from a nuclear power station. And it becomes a living creature and returns to the school where it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and eats the teachers. So. <laughs> but finally, finally, finally it is defeated. There you go. So um, uh, there you go, there you go. Um, and that's what, and I wrote that, and it was, it, the book didn't do very well. I don't know why, teachers didn't seem to want to buy it. Um, uh, but it became, and this, this, uh, this American film producer actually saw it and she thought it would make a good film, so they bought it. And it's going to be a film next year called The Thing That Came From Jason's Nose. Cartoon Network, contract said, you know, yeah, Hollywood, so there you go. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Have you enjoyed it? Yeah! Right, everyone put their arms up in the air like that. Repeat after me, we're not worthy. Okay, we're not worthy. And again, and again. Right, okay. Right, enjoy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers, thanks. <laughs>